Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. As, um, as we begin our time together, I want to invite you, congregation, to turn to the book of Ruth. Uh, we're actually going to be starting a new series today, but we're just going to be touching on a small sliver of what the book of Ruth teaches, and I want to bring that application of Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, part A, to our graduates today, as well as to each one of us here. In, in the book of Ruth, we, we find an amazing, amazing story of God's grace. In fact, I've actually called this message series, God's Grace and Great Famine. And we're going to talk about the famine part of that next week. But as we start off in Ruth chapter 1, we're given a very, very important clue in the first couple verses. Um, Ruth chapter 1. And by the way, we have Bibles in the pews in front of you now. So if you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, grab out a copy, a text copy of God's Word. We'd love to have you be reading the the scriptures with us. Um, but, but here's what it says, right? It's a very long scripture reading for our morning today. I won't even have you stand. It says this, during the time of the judges. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the gift of your word and for the gift of these students to the lives of our congregation. And God, I echo Scott's prayers that you'd bless them and lead them and guide them, that they would seek your face and that they would pursue, pursue you first in all the areas of their life. God, I pray that they would be consumed with what it means to know you and to pursue you passionately in their life. And God, we want to commit our lives to that same end this morning here. And we do so with your help, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, that really was our scripture reading for this morning. We'll be in a couple of other places, but during the time of the judges, most of the time we'd probably start there and we would just move on. Oh, during the time of the judges. Um, but when we see a clue like that, um, one of the things that the writer of scripture is giving us is they're giving us an idea of here's the historical context in which this whole narrative of four chapters is going to be painted on. Uh, and when we read, during the time of the judges, as Bible students, we should ask, what was the time of the judges? Like, what does that mean? Uh, in, our, in our English um, of Western Bibles, um, it, Ruth comes... Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. Actually, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, there's all the same books, but they're in a different order. Um, but here, it's really helpful for us that it goes Judges and then Ruth. Because if you're in Ruth 1 and you read during the time of the Judges, what we can find is that we can back up just one verse into the very last verse of the book of Judges, and we can get a sense of what the time of the Judges describes. Here it says in Judges 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he wanted. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he wanted. What I want to submit to you this morning 
is church family and students. You live in a world which I believe describes the judges period in many ways. We live in a world in which there is no king and everyone does what they want. It doesn't take that long to look out outside in our culture around us and you find all sorts of comments and you find all sorts of statements about, well, this is my truth or this is what I think or this is what I feel. But the challenge is, is as people of the text and as people of God, we're not called to live according to our beliefs or our feelings. We're, call, we're called and encouraged to live by God's revelation. And the difference is just dynamic. The, the, the difference is having an understanding that you and I were once lost and separated from God and now we have life through the Messiah, Jesus, and we have hope and we have forgiveness of sin. But when you walk in a way in which self is the source of life and self is the pursuit of life, it invariably leads to brokenness. We see this all the way back in the scriptures when, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and they took of the fruit that they were forbidden to eat, brokenness entered into the story. We live in a time of judges where there's no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so I entitled our message this morning is, what did I entitle it? Living for Christ in the days of the judges. Because what I, <laughs> what I want to point us to is, okay, this is the world God has placed you and I in. How do we intentionally live in this reality? Because God has sovereignly planted you and I here in the time of the judges. Just like he sovereignly planted Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and all of those people of the story we'll read in the coming weeks in their time of the judges. In the time of the judges, it was a wicked, messed up time. Let me kind of set this text for you a little bit more historically. Um, you have in the story of Israel, you have all the way back in the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, all that kind of stuff. Genesis chapter 12 comes, God covenants with Abram. And he says, Abram, I want to give you a land, I want to give you a nation, and I want to give you a blessing, which is something because Abram and his wife Sarah had no kids. In fact, they didn't have one kid until Abram was in his 90s, and Sarah was in her late 80s, early 90s, somewhere in there. So God sovereignly and miraculously gives provision for them. But he gives them this, this nation and people and land and a blessing because he wants them to be people who bless the world. He wants, to be, he wants them to be the conduit through whom he would bring great blessing to the world. And so you have the story of Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. You have Jacob whose name is changed to Israel. Eventually Israel, Jacob, goes into Egypt. God saves the people of, or the people of um, Israel, and he saves the whole world through the work of Joseph that we find in a large part of the back end of Genesis. Or, yeah, the back end of Genesis. But then, after a time, the people of Israel stayed in Egypt, and they forgot God, and they were actually enslaved. And I don't know that they were enslaved because they forgot God, but the truth is, is that they found themselves patterned in the mold of Egypt. And in the process of that, they were kept under incredible, incredible pressure. In Exodus chapter 3, um, 
uh, Moses is sent to Israel because God, it says, he hears the cries of his people in Israel, and he says, Moses, I want you to go. Moses was a runaway uh, Israelite who had lived and grown up in Egypt, though he was Jewish, uh, but he is sent back by God to be a deliverer and a leader for the people. And so Moses eventually goes back, he, he and his brother Aaron, they lead the people out of slavery and bondage of Egypt. I'm getting to the time of the judges here. Um, so they come out after 40 years of kind of not wanting to follow God, wanting to not allow God to be king, although they also wanted God to be king because the kind of spiritual walk is kind of a messy thing sometimes. After God delivers them from Egypt, they proclaim God as king, and then they kind of push back on him. After that 40-year period, we find that a whole generation dies out. Moses' successor is a guy by the name of Joshua, son of Nun. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land to, um, to plant themselves as God's people in the place that he had for them. This is the end of uh, the books of the Torah. We have all this written. And just as we enter into the book of Joshua, we find this conquest taking place. During the time of Joshua... There is conquering going on. They conquer places like Jericho and Ai. And one of the reasons they conquer is, number one, God tells them to. Number two, the wickedness of the land, of the people in the land, had reached such a great fever that they, they're used by God to help bring judgment to that place. Uh, as well as they're fulfilling God's purposes in planting themselves in that land. What happens after the time of Joshua, though, is that there are no more leaders in Israel. In fact, turn with me please to, to Judges chapter 2. So we're backing up now to Judges chapter 2, and I want you to get a flavor of what this period looks like in the beginning of Judges. In Judges chapter 2, it says, this is verse 6. We're, we're getting the uh, picture of what happens after Joshua, their leader, dies says, Joshua sent the people away, and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. It says, the people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Heretz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Okay, so their leader is being buried. And so they're going into a whole new generation. And here's what I want you to see about what's going on here. Verse 10, that whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors after them. Another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done. So before we get the words of there's no king in the land and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we have to first understand what happens to Israel is something that's very common to happen to people. We forget what God has done and then we go and we do our own thing. Have you ever forgotten what God has done? You're, you're in the middle of something. Maybe it's a, a moment of joy or maybe it's a moment of trial. And you go, I'm just going to do this because this just makes sense. What God wants to do in our journey of knowing him is for us to remember who he is, what he has done, and with thankfulness say, all right, Lord, I need you to be my king because there's no way I can do this in my own strength. 
In fact, when it says in the end of Judges, there's no king in Israel, one of the things that it's preparing you for in the text that that most people think Samuel wrote, or many people think Samuel wrote um, the book of Ruth and and this historical record of the book of Judges, um, one of the things that it's preparing you for is an actual monarchy, i.e. you've got um, Saul, David, Jonathan, and then you have all the other kings that come after them. Um, But what it's also preparing you for is that people need a king. And it's preparing you for God wants to rule on earth through people like Saul, David, and Jonathan, or Saul, David, and and Solomon. But what he really wants them to do is he wants them to know him. He wants to be their king. In fact, when Israel is taken out of the land of Egypt, they have this whole um, sea of reeds thing where Pharaoh is pursuing them and God miraculously saves them. One of the things that, um, that Moses and the Israelites sing in Exodus 15, they sing this song to the Lord and they, they sing, the, the horse and his rider he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. And they come to the end of this big song praising God for how he's just delivered them. And they say these words, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Many, many scholars think that this is the first time in which God's kingship is being established in the scriptures. So, so Israel knows God to be king, but many times they say, no, we don't want a king. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. And what Ruth is going to do is going to pave a way for the earthly king, David, because actually Ruth becomes the grandmother of King David. It's a long, great story we'll talk about in the weeks to come. So you have, you have this pre-period of... Um, of the patriarchs, Abraham, um, Isaac, Jacob, and all that kind of stuff, up to the point of Joshua, you have this period of the judges that begins when Joshua dies and all the elders of that generation die. You have this period of the judges where people did not know the Lord, and then you have this change into the period of the kings when you have Saul anointed as king. That's kind of where it fits historically. But what describes the judges is what I've said. People do what is right in their own eyes. There is no king which screams to us, we need a king. And we don't just need an earthly king, we need a messianic king. We need one who will come and conquer the greatest foe that we have, sin and death, and who will lead us in his righteousness. So, there is where we are at in our context there. But where I want to plant for a couple minutes is on this phrase in Judges chapter 2, where it says, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord. Because I think the key to living in the time of the judges is for us to know the Lord. The answer is not in just great policy or, or wise discernment in the public square, although that is really important. It first begins by the people of God knowing their king. And I want to point you to a passage that speaks so great about this. So would you please turn with me to the New Testament, being a couple different places as we we go on, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul picks up this idea of what it means to know the Lord. When we think of knowing, we can often think of something cognitive, Students, you came into class in your last couple weeks here. Some of you who haven't graduated yet are going into a class here in the next couple days where you're going to be asked to probably know something. 
right? You need to know the answers to this math test. And you need to know the answers to this grammar, whatever it is you do. You know, um, you need to know these certain things to get certain grades in order to move on to the next grade. When th there is that sense of knowledge in the scripture, but when it says in Judges that they did not know me, he's not talking about a cognitive function primarily. He's talking about a relational function. Um, actually, the word know in Hebrew, uh, it's the word yada uh, or yada, and, and it means to know intimately. It, it's a word that's used of, um, I think it's Jeremiah the prophet, who knew his wife and then they had a kid, <laughs> right? It's the sense of great intimacy. Um, last week, uh, or not last week, yeah, I guess it's last week because yesterday was last week, I, I got to officiate a wedding for some friends of mine. And this week I get to officiate a wedding for some friends of mine. And one of the amazing things about that covenant ceremony is it begins a new way of relating to one another. You go from relating to one another as boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, and fiance. You get married in this covenant ceremony and now there is a covenant which means I'm 100% in, I'm 100% in. We have this bond that's made between us before God and before the people, and it begins a, a deeper journey of knowing someone. So you wake up the next day after you're married, and you realize, oh, this person puts the toothbrush on that side of the sink, oh, you know, or whatever it is. Or you find out in time that they always leave their socks in the living room instead of putting them in the hamper, or whatever it is. You begin this journey and process of not just knowing about someone, but about knowing who they are, knowing what makes them tick. Knowing what, what causes them to become really excited about the day ahead. Knowing what fears are put into their life because of the stresses in their life. It, it's a journey. It's a process of knowing. Um, so when we think about knowing here, I, I don't want us to think of, I know this, therefore it's tucked away in my knowledge, and knowledge is sufficient. Because in relationships, there's always this greater growing dynamic of what it means to be knowing someone. And this is the journey that God wants to invite us into. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to do a couple of things here. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to give a warning. Um, because there's a whole bunch of people, well, number one, Paul's writing from prison. And he's writing to the church at Philippi, or Philippi, if you'd like to call it Philippi. And he, one of the constant themes of this book is I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice. Whatever struggle, whatever trial, whatever thing you face, I want you to rejoice. And in verses 2 through 6, he, he's going to give them this picture of you can have all the right credentials. You can have all the right credentials. But that doesn't mean you have a growing, knowing relationship with Jesus. Notice what Paul says. He, he says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I once had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is saying, he's about to give his resume. He's going to say, here's all the things I could tell you about my religious pedigree. We'll just read them. He says, 
I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law. I was blameless, he says. He says, if you looked at my life according to Jewish law and according to Jewish culture at that time, you would have looked at me and you would have said, man, he is doing everything right. He has everything worked out. He went to Hebrew school. He has studied with the best of the best. He's got every degree after his name you could say. And he says here, man, I was pretty good. Because what he's setting you up and I up for is all those things that give us a list of this is what it means to know something are really in the long run not very important. Now, now God does use those things in our life. I'm sure that God used Paul's training in the scriptures to bring truth to the people of his day. I'm sure that studying under Rabbi Gamaliel enabled him to have certain rhetorical skills that were helpful in talking about the Messiah with the Jewish people. But he says, those are not who I am. In fact, he's going to go on to say here in verse 7, read with me please, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All the things that I once held dear, all the things I built my life upon, all the things that this world reveres and says, that looks great. He says, those things are worthless in comparison to Christ. He says in verse 8, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Students, you may have graduated with a 4.0. If you did, awesome job. You may have graduated not with a 4.0. Yeah, that was my story. Um, you, you may have been top of your varsity team. You may have done amazingly well on your SATs, or you may have been the most popular person at school. All those things, they have their place. Paul here says, though, that's not the point. In fact, if Paul were here, I think he would say, you could stack up everything you've done, which is awesome. But if you stack all those things up and you find your identity and your worth in those things, I think he would tell us, you're going to miss the point. Because there's nothing greater than knowing, okay, participle there, the ongoing process of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, for Paul, it's not those things that defined him. God uses those things, but it's not those things that define him. His identity is grounded in Christ. Everything is a loss, verse 7, because of Christ. He considers everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them to be filth or rubbish or dung, you could translate it, so that I may gain Christ. So here he's talking about identity, but he switches from talking about identity to talking about what should my life look like as I go on to school, as I go into a profession, as I look to get married, as I go to my job tomorrow. What should be the driving factor of your life and of mine? He says, I've suffered the loss of all things so that I might gain Christ be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. You want to know what Paul's goal was? 
He tells us here, he says, my goal in verse 10 is to know him. That's what he's pressing onward to. He's in this journey of knowing his Savior. That's not knowing about. That's not having more Bible facts, right? That's not having a better understanding of an original language. That's having a deeper relationship with Jesus tomorrow than you had today. And friends, that does not come by accident. Paul is setting his mind, his heart, his goal towards this one thing. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He, he's putting his whole life in view of what God has done for him. He, he no longer finds his righteousness in, oh, God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Therefore, you must love me. No, he, he, he now understands that is absolutely rubbish. In fact, God loved him before he did all those things. In fact, God purposed to send his son to die for him before Paul did all those things. In, in fact, it was at Paul's greatest lows when he's persecuting the church, he thinks he's doing what is righteous, that God appears to him and he says, Paul, he says Saul, his Hebrew, his Hebrew name, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul meets the Lord Jesus and he goes, oh my word, I never could have imagined that my life could have greater purpose than what it is now. But he finds his purpose after coming to know Christ in knowing the God who has redeemed and saved him. I love this word power here. To know him and the power of his resurrection. Think about the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. Right? So when we think about this, this power, this is not power. This is wow power. This is next level power that raised Jesus from the dead. He wants to know Christ's power in him. You could maybe define power as the divine enablement to do what God calls you and enables you to do. He wants to know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He wants to know that power of God in his life so that he can walk out with God's help and God's divine enablement all the things that God has placed before him. He wants to be uh, knowing the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. It's probably something we don't talk about enough in Christian circles. But suffering is a very real part of the human existence. Sickness, disease, relational conflict, things ending poorly. <laughs> suffering is one of those things that touches every single one of us here at some point or at multiple points in our life. The amazing thing about Jesus is he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He, he knows what it's like to not be received by his own people, to be misunderstood by his family, even for a good chunk of time. Um, he knows what it's like to wash his disciples' feet in this act of service. In John chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet. And one of the disciples' feet whom he washed was the person who in hours would betray him. It's just amazing to think that Jesus went through 
all of that because what he cared about was restoring all of us and his disciples and the whole world to himself. He didn't want us to be forever separated from him. Now, the gospel is something that is a free gift of God's grace to you today. And if you have not confessed that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead, your invitation today is come to the end of yourself and confess Christ as Lord over your life because that's where you're going to find hope. That's where you're going to find meaning. That's where you're going to find purpose. But as you do that, know that if you've been one who's experienced suffering, you've experienced abuse, if you've experienced loss, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. In fact, he suffered so much on this earth that, that he, can, he, can, he can empathize with our weakness because he himself has experienced the hardships of this world. And Paul writes from prison, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. Paul is on this journey of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. But I like how Paul phrases this because sometimes it's like, oh, when will we ever reach that time? And Paul says in verse 12, he says, not that I have already reached the goal or that I'm already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus, right? So, so he's saying here, I have not reached the full potential of what God wants me to be. One day he will be glorified. Like positionally before God, he's accepted, he's loved, he's redeemed, he's secure. His future, his, his future is, is good, right? Because of Christ's work. But he's engaging in this process. The great apostle Paul is engaging in this process of what it means to know Christ Jesus as Lord. And he knows that this is going to be a journey that's going to take him all the way until he sees his Savior face to face. I love how he uses the phrase here, I make every effort to take hold of it, this, this goal of pursuing Christ, because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So think of it this way. Christ Jesus came down into Paul's life and he took hold of him and he said, you are mine, let's walk together. And Paul's job now, Paul's mission, Paul's goal is to say, Lord, you're right here, let's walk. What do you have for me next? Is it Spain? Is it Rome? Is it Thessaloniki? Is it Philippi? Is it Berea? What do you have for me next, God? What, where are we walking to today? How are we going to honor you in what I have to say to the Jewish people? How am I going to honor you in, in what I have to say to the Gentile people? How, how will I rejoice even while I am under house arrest? He looks to Jesus to be his to be everything he needs. He's less concerned about the momentary afflictions that comprise his life on earth. He wants to be more consumed with Christ. He wants to be more consumed with the one who has already taken hold of him so that he can know him. In fact, he says this, brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. If we were all to spend a bit of our time thinking about what is behind us, it's probably likely that many of us here would struggle with some sort of past guilt and past shame. 
or past frustration or past pride. I know when I go back to thinking of the things I, I, I've done in my life, you go, oh, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I can't believe I reacted that way. And I'm just thinking about yesterday. Like, I'm not even going back that far. <laughs> um, Paul here is wanting to, to, to not live in the past. Christ has dealt with his past. Now, he may need to go to someone and he may need to apologize to them or he may need to make something right as a part of his active walk with Christ. But he he doesn't want to live according to the past. He wants to take this next step into his future, forgetting what is behind, leaning in towards what God has for him in the future because God is the one who's taken hold of him. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's, Paul's thing is he's not thinking about what's there. He's living life here on earth in light of the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. He, he's letting heaven, as Colossians says, he's letting heaven fill his thoughts. He, he's not thinking about the things and the systems of this earth. He's thinking about, God, I want what you want up in heaven to be what comes down to this earth. He's so heavenly minded here, is his intention is that he wants what God wants to be what actually happens while he's on earth, right? Sometimes we think that um, knowing God is all about, I just need to go up to be with God. Friend, if, if you are here on this earth, God has you here intentionally and with purpose. And he wants to use you to bring a bit of his grace and to bring a bit of the proclamation of the gospel down here to the people in your life who haven't experienced the fullness of Christ in their life yet. He wants you to be someone who is his divine agent. Not that you're divine, but he wants you to be his agent through whom he lives and he moves so that the people around you say, can you tell me about this, Jesus? Because I found, I've tried to find a lot of hope and a lot of joy in a lot of places and the bar didn't work and the internet didn't work and the drugs didn't work and school didn't work and workaholism didn't work and my marriage finding happiness in my marriage didn't work. What do you have? Paul says here, I want to pursue Christ, this God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 15, therefore all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. And he says in verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Like, Paul's heart, Paul's desire is for these people whom he loves, his joy, his crown. He says in Philippians chapter 1, he wants them to know, hey, you might be facing some challenging times in Philippi, but never forget, we have a greater call from Christ And we have a greater provision in Christ for here on earth. And he wants them to set their hearts and their minds on him. He wants them to take hold of Christ and find their life and find their joy and find their purpose in him. Graduates, you're heading into a world and into a period of judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and there is no king. How do you live in that kind of culture? It begins with this, knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. There is no other first step for you that will lead you to joy, peace, happiness, wholeness, shalom. 
In fact, you, you could maybe say it this way. Make knowing Jesus your passionate pursuit. Make knowing Jesus, whatever you are going to next in your life, make knowing Jesus your passionate pursuit. I will tell you, there is, um, there's a whole lot of passionate pursuits you can have. I, I remember one of the years that I was in seminary, um, it was a really hard semester. I, I learned a lot of Greek, and I learned a lot of church history, and I learned a lot of um, other classes. <laughs> I clearly still have them. Um, I learned a lot of stuff, but one of the things that got pushed to the edges of my life I'd wake up at six and I would study. I would go to work around eight. I'd come home around four. We'd have dinner. I would play with the kids for a little while. They were much younger then. Um, I'd play with the kids for a while. And then I would take a nap on the floor (laughs) about seven o'clock after dinner, somewhere in there. And then about eight o'clock, as my wife was putting the kids to bed, I would go upstairs and I would start into my next round of studies. Repeat that for about four months, and it was brutal. And then we realized, whew, that was too big of a load to take. But the thing that really, the thing I struggled with the most was not the schedule. The thing I struggled with the most, in hindsight, was that I'd put a relationship, a passionate pursuit of God, with God, I'd put that on a back burner in order to, wor- to learn the word didaskalos or something like that. I- I'd put that on the back burner in order to get this done or that done. And friends, it happens so quickly and so easily. I want to encourage you as you go into this next season of life, make knowing Jesus, this active, dynamic relationship with God, make that your passionate pursuit. Sure, study your math, (laughs) study your English, write your papers, invest yourself in the things that you are there to learn. But always, always remember, in that process, you have an advocate, you have a comforter, you have one who loves you, you have one who is cheering for you, you have one who wants you to be in this process of knowing him in whatever you are doing. Invite him into that process. Invite him into that process day by day. You might say, well, well how, how do I do that? What, what, what does that look like in a practical way? I think one of the very important things, there's two really important things in, in our knowing Jesus. The first one is this. Make opening the scriptures a daily practice for your life. All right? I'm not saying read 14 chapters in a day, right? Your your worth is not found in reading X amount of chapters in a day. Make pursuing Jesus by opening his word a regular part of your day. In fact, you may be here today and, and you're like, man, it's been a couple days since I've cracked my Bible. I encourage you, start today. Make this next 10 days every single day Wake up with the intention, God, would you help me to know you better as I open your word? Uh, If you don't know where to start, we're actually reading through um, the Bible together as a church. There's a reading plan back there. I can give you one online if that's helpful to you. Um, But open the Bible every single day. It's God's words to you and to me. Um, We gave students, all all you graduates here, we gave you a Moody Bible commentary, all right? This is not the Bible, okay? (laughs) If you have to read one thing, please read 
please read the Bible. (laughs) But you come into a certain passage and you go, I have no idea what that means. Open it up and get some help from a helpful biblical source of of commentary. Um, Seek to know God by knowing his word. It's a very, very important part of our spiritual life. God will use his word to shape and to train us so that we um, we have his thoughts about life and the world and everything. Um, you can also pray God's word back to him, right? Paul says in Philippians, for example, he says, I want you to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And some days, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, some days I just don't feel like rejoicing, <laughs> right? Any, anybody with me? Okay, thank you. A couple of you are honest with me. Some of you are just naturally joyous people, and I'm grateful for you. But I wake up and I'm like, where's the coffee? Because it is not a joyous day, you know? Um, Pray God's word back to him. Say, God, your word says to rejoice. Help me to rejoice because life doesn't feel like a joy right now. Help me to rejoice. Maybe go to the Psalms and use the Psalms to pray to God. Um, you can, I'm trying to think of one, like, like Psalm 100. You know, when you, when you say something and then you can't think of it when you say it, it's great. Thank you so much. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Maybe what you need to do is you need to put a, a, a song of worship on and you say, God, I'm going to make a joyful noise in the midst of my life. I'm going to proclaim your goodness and your grace. Sometimes, friends, I've told you this before, I think, uh, I will just come in here or I'll, or I'll go downstairs or I'll put headphones on and I'll start my day not with news, not with email. I'll start it with praise because it helps direct my heart in a godly way. Some days I don't do that, and that's usually not a great thing. Um, So open the word of God. That's number one. Number two application is pray. And and I'll be honest, uh, prayer can be really hard for me. It's hard for me to get out of the roteness of prayer. Um, As I said before, you can pray God's word back to him. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. God, I want to rejoice in you today. And begin to um, think of things that you can rejoice about. Well, God, you've been good to me, right? Like you've saved me from sin and death. God, you've given me a family surrounding me. God, you've given me provision, food on my table. God, you have met my needs. I bless you for that. God, you have made a beautiful day. The sunshine is actually out today. We're gonna hit 71. Bless the Lord. You know, all these things you can celebrate and you can practice thanksgiving for. Prayer, um, I think it was John Calvin who said, prayer is an attitude of dependence or an act of dependence. What he means by that, I think, is this. When we pray, we, we look to God's provision for our life and God's power for our life, not to our own resources. Like, and I love it too, because we can pour out our hearts to God the psalmist says, which means whatever you're feeling, guess what? God knows it anyway. You might as well tell him. And you can say, God, I'm feeling really angry right now. Or God, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. Or God, I'm feeling really broken right now. God, I'm feeling really tempted by sin right now. Hebrews tells us that that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive help in our time of need. Sometimes the last time I want to approach God's throne is when I'm in greatest need. Sometimes I'd rather just try to 
do it my own way instead of say, God, I don't want to live that way. I want to actually live according to what you want for me. All right? So what's the process of knowing God? Part of the process of knowing Jesus, your Redeemer, your Savior, is opening his word and allowing his word to become truth that reveals to you what he wants you to do, how he wants you to live. Second thing is, is to pray and say, God, I can't do this on my own. Guess what? That's one of the best prayers you can pray. God, I can't. I can't. God knows that. The hardest thing will be not getting up from that prayer and saying, all right, now I've got to go do it myself. <laughs> just, just get up and say, God, I, I need you to go with me because I don't have wisdom for this. I don't have strength for this. Let God be the one who gives you everything you need because it's exactly what he's promised. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. We don't like weakness. I don't like weakness. I won't speak for you. I don't like weakness. I don't like to feel weak. But weakness is where God's power and where God's grace shines the most brilliant. Because in our weakness, we go, yeah, there's no way I could have done that. <laughs> we look at the spiritual things that are going on around us. We look at the time of the judges in which we live. The best thing we can set our hearts and our minds toward is knowing Jesus. There is no greater thing. Students, as you go into the next thing that God has for you, adults, as you go into the next thing God has for you, it all applies to you and I as well. Pursue knowing Jesus. Pursue knowing him. Make him your passionate pursuit. Father, I pray this morning that you would reveal to us exactly where we are at in our passionate pursuit of you. Some of us here, God, may be facing just a, a, a season of staleness within our Christian walk. Would you remind us, God, that you are here right now, that you want to walk with us, and God, that you've actually created the church to be a community of believers, to encourage one another to set our hearts and our minds on pursuing you. So, so God, help us to do that today. Even as we leave this morning, God, help us to not just stay in our own silo and to stay in our own, um, our, our own path. Help us to look, God, to the people around us and to see how we can encourage with a word from uh, the scriptures or how, how we can pray for one another and, and build up one another in our faith. God, we do pray for... Um, all those facing transition moments in their life. It's oftentimes, God, in these very challenging, yet sometimes exciting moments, um, where you stretch us and you grow us the most. Um, help us to remember, God, that it's not in the, um, it's, it's many times in the challenging, difficult parts of our life where we learn to cling and hold on to you the tightest. God, we, we pray, um, we pray for the world in which you've placed us. Sometimes it's easy, God, to be escapist, or sometimes it's easy to be indifferent to the sin that is around us and, and to the people who are far from you. Um, but Lord, as we enter into our world again here and we engage people who are created in your image, 
we, we know, God, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it's power and it's life to those who believe. God, as we engage this world, regardless of how they treat us, may they see Christ in us. May, may they see that weakness is actually a strength when you are the source of our life. Father, help us to pursue you passionately in this week that we have ahead. We are dependent upon your grace for this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772-4377.